This is Sacred Tension, a podcast about the spiritual discipline of asking questions. And my name is Stephen Long. I'm your host. It seems like just about all of us have spiritual or religious trauma of some kind. It seems pretty much ubiquitous. Either we've had a horrible experience within a religion, or we're just horrified by the abuses of religion on others, on the most vulnerable, on those we love. And this creates a charged atmosphere where it's really hard to talk about religion. It's really hard to even bring up the word religion without some kind of trigger response, without someone being shut down. We find ourselves either skeptics or religious or spiritual but not religious. And almost inevitably, this conversation is fraught with anxiety. So, enter David Dark. He has done a lot of thinking about how to make these conversations that we try to have about religion more productive. And his suggestions are thought-provoking. While you may not agree with everything he puts forth in this conversation, I encourage everyone to really consider what he's saying, to take it seriously, to really work through it. David Dark is the author of The Sacredness of Questioning Everything, Everyday Apocalypse, The Sacred Revealed in Radiohead, The Simpsons and Other Pop Culture Icons, and The Gospel According to America, a meditation on a God-blessed, Christ-haunted idea. And his most recent book, Life is Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious. His work has appeared in MTV News, Books and Culture, Pitchfork, and the Oxford American. Following years of teaching high school English, he received his doctorate in 2011 and now teaches at the Tennessee Prison for Women and Belmont University, where he is assistant professor of religion and the arts in the College of Theology. So with that, I hope you enjoy this conversation and I give you David Dark. All right. So, David Dark, thank you so much yeah. for doing this. Happy to. I'm grateful for the opportunity. Yeah, I know I've been pestering you for like the past two or three weeks. Um, but I'm glad we can finally do this. Yes, indeed. I've been I've been aware of you. You've kind of been on my on my horizon for years. I first heard about you in college when you would come to Montre College and and do talks. Wow. Yeah. So I've and you've been and you've been someone who's been recommended to me a lot as someone that I need to read. You've just stuck out in my mind because you have like this superhero name. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I will deny it. <laughs> like when I when I was in college, I would just hear that you were doing uh, a convocation and I'd be like, wow, that's a fucking awesome name. Mm-hmm. And, and that's that was the extent of my knowledge of you. But we found each other on Twitter and uh and we've just kind of been following each other since then so Mm -hmm. you have written a really beautiful book called life is too short to pretend you're not religious yes it is the most recent book that you've written you've written several 
Mm -hmm. all of which seem to converge on the subject of finding the sacred in pop culture and in everyday life and breaking down the boundaries of spirituality or or breaking down the boundaries of of sacred and secular. Yes. Yeah. So uh, when I first heard your when I first read the title of your book, Life is Too Short to Pretend You're Not Religious, I was like, what the fuck is this? I I mean, I I had a very negative response to that title because to me, the word religious has a negative connotation, even though I even though I consider myself a deeply religious person. And so that was a catalyst for like some self-examination of I'm a religious person. And even I am having a negative response to this word. Yes. So uh, at the very beginning of the book, you tell this story about you were talking to someone, you were having this deep conversation. Mm -hmm. And, and then he said, no one is no one is more non-religious than I am. Can you tell that story and kind of your reaction to it and and why you included that in the book? Why you started the book with that story? Yes, I it is personal because I I know that when somebody begins to suspect that I might be religious or Christian or even interested in scripture um, sacred traditions, all of that. I believe that there is a knee-jerk reaction um, that is well earned um, because religion does, in our day, it does name a kind of toxicity, um, a kind of aggression, a kind of brainwash, and I get it. I don't want to take away from anyone their, um, their right to get free of the mess, the bad ideas, the hatefulness, the bullying, the degradation that um, operates underneath the name of religion. And yet, I, I think nuance, I like to argue, is sacred. And I feel like I am always trying to make a case for nuance in one sense or another. And in this instance with this fellow that I was talking to, we had connected and um, we talked Bible. And I was trying to argue that the Bible rightly read is the most formidable array of social criticism ever assembled in one volume. Um, He liked that because he's a fan of the civil rights movement. fan of Martin Luther King Jr., beloved community, but he did feel um, wary. And at one point, because the question of God was arising, he said, no one doesn't believe in God as much as I do. And um, it was a funny thing for him to say. But even then, I, I, my worry was that if he had me pegged as a believer in God, that um, we were going to be done. Um, And so I I was not fighting, I don't think fighting is the word, but just trying to keep people throwing the ball back is kind of what I am always trying to do. And um, I'm not trying to argue that everybody needs to start calling themselves religious, but my big assertion is that if you think that you've escaped relationships, 
or the inescapable network of mutuality in which we all draw our breath, eat our food, spend money, all of that. If, if we're trying to escape relationship um, in suggesting that someone is more religious than we are, I want to somehow have that, you know, the cane that I want to, not a hook that would pierce flesh, but I do want to draw people back in to the conversation in one way or another. And religion, I argue, is this abstraction. Like politics, like media, three big abstractions with which we avoid the fact of our own activity, our own implicatedness in the whole of culture. Mm. So... What I get from what you're saying and from reading your book, which, you know, I'm afraid that to my shame, I haven't finished yet. I'm in the middle of no, it, no big. but it's a it's a beautiful book. What I get is that you are examining religion and trying to understand the word religion from a mm-hmm. relational context. And so yeah. you see labels you see the given there's there's one point in the book where you say that there's nothing more lazy than Mm -hmm. assigning a label to another person there's nothing more dismissive than assigning a label that shuts down that dialogue that allows us to feel morally superior to another human being and that what that label does is that it it um it closes down our understanding of that person's nuance it does. Yeah, and I totally agree with that. I, I think that's a beautiful point that you make. And so you examine religion in an attempt to kind of narrow this chasm between mm-hmm. religious and non-religious and to stop and, and to help people stop using religion as this term that mm-hmm. uh, elevates themselves and dismisses and belittles others. Yeah. And and you basically go on to say we all have crazy religious backgrounds. Yes. And you you redefine religion in the context of your book to mean something maybe very different from what most of us think. So how what is your definition of religion within the context of your book? Yes. Well, the, I before I well, I'll drop it and I'll say religion is controlling story. Um, we all have lots of them lots of controlling stories. We, we're, we're pretty solid with controlling story because the leg is tie, bind, bond, and releg of religar, religion, is to tie again. So however it is we're tied up, however it is we're bound, that is our religion. And I do provocatively suggest that there's no getting away from social bonds from promises, from a pull. I, ref- I suggest at one point that when we feel the magnetic pull of an Apple store, or if we hear a Bob Dylan song that sort of sneaks up on us and suddenly we're thinking about something that we weren't thinking about before, we are experiencing the pull of religion. And sort of provocatively, I say that the Muslim going to prayer is not more or less religious than the man with a plastic cheese head on his skull going into a sports bar to watch a Green Bay Packers game. Mm. We're all formed in one way or another. There is no escape from this question of controlling story. And when we get clear 
of bad religion, um, it doesn't mean that we are now in a non-religion zone. It means that we've entered into better, perhaps more righteous formations, cultural formations. To think that you can be against religion is like being opposed to the formation of a line at Starbucks. You know, any kind of form again. So to argue that there's bad religion as well as good religion, false religion as well as true religion, is to go way broader than the headlines or the news speak, mm. where we will often hear talk of, I mean, a, one that I don't think shows up in the book, if, if there's a bombing and it turns out that one of the suspects was seen at a mosque um, shortly before the bombing or even months before the bombing, our newspeak, the headlines will say, religion played a role, the role of religion. And to me, that is as incoherent as saying culture was involved mm. or language, language involved itself in this situation. And, and I understand why we do this, because we're trying to somehow corral chaos, somehow explain away, not explain away, but just tell a story about um, things that happen, but to think that to speak of the role of religion or um, a religious dimension, I, I just don't think it works for any um, sensible way of discussing the sacred traditions that form us. Mm. So really kind of what you're doing is you're stripping down the concept of religion to like its barest bones, to its most elemental state, which is the these binding stories. Yes. Right. Okay. And and the attempt to do this is to kind of break break down these walls in relationships. Mm -hmm. Now, I've heard some people say that to do this, to to make religion such an elemental thing, is mm -hmm. to strip religion, the word religion, of its meaning. And I've read some critical reviews of your book that have mm -hmm. said that. But I've also kind of listened to this discussion in, in other areas. Sam Harris, you know, the, the great new atheist, he had mm -hmm. someone on named Dr. Jordan Peterson, who is very much arguing something similar to what you were saying. And Sam Harris just wasn't buying it. And he said, you know, when I think of religion, I think of deities to which you are bound, deities to which, you know, you have to appease. And... And I think most people, when they think of religion, they they think of maybe a delusional state in which you believe in a God that mm -hmm. that requires sacrifice in, in some way. And if it isn't that, sure. then it's not religion. And people yeah. and I've heard people argue, well, if you strip that from religion, if you take that meaning out, then it isn't religion anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you respond to that criticism? Yeah, I would say people are welcome to do that, but why? I, I, well, I think the rhetorical move is um, that means that whoever I'm in opposition to is always going to be the religious person, and I am always going to be on the side of cool reason, rationality, um, zero delusion. So what that insistence Upon note, it's not religion unless you're talking about afterlife or gods. Um, what that accomplishes is it it puts the opposition always in the 
it means that everybody is deluded except me. Mm. Everyone's crazy <laughs> except me. Everyone's a fanatic except me. And I think that the effect of that means that we will call a suicide bomb in Jerusalem religious, and we will call a drone strike in Afghanistan reasonable. I see. And yes. Yeah, and that, so it's a very costly um, rhetorical move that can reduce an entire civil, civilian population to the status of religious nuts. So let's bomb them all back to the Stone Age. I see. And it, so, so when we're talking homeland security, when we're talking human sacrifice, um, as in, I mean, I don't want to get overly graphic about it, but when we're talking um, wiping out human beings and we're not willing to refer to that human sacrifice as our own ritual, our own form of worship, our own demand, we leave ourselves off the ethical hook, which is, well, which is catastrophic, which ends up Absolutely. underwriting all manner of um, murder and death and destruction in the name of civilization. So any claim, yeah, any instance in which we take human life and insist that it's necessary, but we nevertheless want to somehow separate ourselves from the moral indictment of um, the prophetic witness, for instance, I think that's an evasion that that is un, unacceptable. And, and of course, for me, so much of this comes from my own formation under the witness of folks like Dorothy Day and Martin Luther King and Daniel and Philip Berrigan, if I can be permitted this quick little Absolutely. tangent. Absolutely, yeah, I yeah. love so, tangents. Okay, so in the late 60s, we had this moment of clarity in which, after much prayer, much study of scripture, much consultation um, within their community, Daniel and Philip Berrigan, um, a couple of Jesuit priests, Daniel had become known as a poet, decided that given the human sacrifices being taken in terms of civilian casualties in Vietnam and young American men being drafted into the military effort in Vietnam, Daniel and Philip and others broke into a draft board in Catonsville, Maryland, took out draft files and burned them with homemade napalm while saying the Lord's Prayer, while administering the Mass, and undertaking their own liturgy, their own counter-liturgy against the liturgy of um, the military-industrial complex. It was this, this big moment in which mm. they said, we apologize for our fracture of good order. We are burning paper instead of children. Mm. And they both went to jail. They would go to jail again for similar actions. But to say this is government, this is what's necessary, this is not sacred liturgy, while viewing the flag or any kind of um, nationalistic, oh, how to put it, um, my language is failing me a little bit, but no to, insist, to insist this isn't liturgy or keep your church out of our politics 
is to make a claim for the sacrosanct. Sacrosanct is kind of a funny word, but that which is sacrosanct is that which is so sacred um, that you can't question or interrogate it in any way. And of course, a story, you know, constantly in our news cycle, the idea that Colin Kaepernick, by taking a knee during the national anthem, is involved in something more insidious than, you know, beating his wife or something like that. We have it within the NFL literature. Sure. Because here's Colin Kaepernick, who is an exemplary person in so many ways, but he really crosses the line when he doesn't, you know, enter into the act of worshipfulness um, that is demanded of everyone at the beginning of a sporting event. I see. Kind of thing. Yes. Okay. So to try to say, no, 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 that's not worship. That's not religion. It's like, well, what's more religious than a pledge of allegiance? What's more relig religious than a vow? So I, I do find it necessary in order to think sanely and coherently about human culture that we don't always insist that this is religious and that isn't. I think that that, that rhetorical move leads to much, much confusion. It is how the Pope can say of Donald Trump, you know, you shouldn't be all about building, you can't be all about building walls and all opposed to bridges and still think of yourself as a Christian. Mm. To which Donald Trump can say, no one gets to question my religion. Mm. It's like, um, yes, we do get to question your religion because religion is culture, is however our ultimate concerns are playing out. So that, that is the sense in which I would view, and because of that misunderstanding, um, we would have millions of people who would view Donald Trump as a more meaningfully Christian figure than Jimmy Carter. Mm. That, that's, that is the play, that is the cashing out of this confusion, mm. which is why I believe that religion is the most, is right up there with politics and media, is one of the most catastrophically unexamined concepts of our time. Yeah, I agree. And and I think tying into that is also one of the most catastrophically and unexamined concept is that of rationality and our own minds. We assume that our mind is this perfectly clear perfectly perceptive instrument. Yes. And, you know, Jonathan Haidt, who's a social psychologist, he calls this the rationalist delusion. Yes. And we believe that we are perfectly rational beings, that we are not under any controlling story or subconscious narrative or or, mm -hmm. arch or archetypal narrative. We, we assume that that is not the case with us. And it seems to yeah. me what you're doing with the word religion and reexamining the word religion is is to put another spin on that. Yeah. Uh, to say that we are all primarily irrational. Mm -hmm. I, I think that we are primarily irrational, secondarily rational beings. Mm -hmm. I, I think you're putting another spin on that and to say that we are primarily irrational beings and that, we, and that we are not aware of this multitude of influences on our lives Yeah, is to say that we are religious if we define religious as binding stories. Yeah. Now, I find this really liberating. I find this really, really helpful because, you know, one of my great journeys uh, in, you know, for the past 10 years 
has been coming to terms with the fact that my brain is deeply flawed mm. and my uh, perceiving mechanism of reality is a deeply flawed machine. It, it mm-hmm. I w- you know, we're not evolved to, mm-hmm. to understand truth. I really don't think truth in the evolutionary scheme has great weight. <laughs> we, yeah. We, yeah. we are evolved to be tribal. We're a bunch of monkeys. You know, sure. we're, we're monkeys who've learned how to think. And mm-hmm. that thinking is a pretty new invention for mm-hmm. the human race, that yeah. rash, rationality and science and so on. Critical thinking. Critical yeah. thinking. That's pretty new stuff. And our survival does not depend on us getting the truth right. It depends on us being tribal and learning how to survive and connect Mm -hmm. with others in our tribe and learning how to win them over. Mm -hmm. And when I accept this about myself, that I am an enlightened monkey doing the best I can, Mm -hmm. I have to confront the fact that, that there is a whole world of bias, a whole unconscious world of binding stories in my life that I'm not even aware of. Yeah, Put, yeah. Putting that into the context of religion, I find <laughs> incredibly helpful. I, yeah. I I find that really really liberating. So I'm I'm going to try to articulate something with okay. you, and I don't know, I don't know how well I'm going to do this. So bear with me. Okay. Okay. I have recently become very much a skeptic, mm-hmm. and this has kind of been an ongoing struggle for me. Of, of reconciling science and my Christian faith. And that's something mm-hmm. that I've been writing about and talking about quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And I've had to look at how rational is my... Okay, let me, let me see if I can verbalize this. Even my skepticism is yeah. a sort <laughs> of irrational religion. Sure. Because the way it came to me was in the context of relationship. Mm -hmm. The way it came to me was someone telling me a great story. It was Mm -hmm. from these podcasters who tell compelling stories of science. It it came from Neil deGrasse Tyson, Mm -hmm. you know, watching Neil deGrasse Tyson late into the night talking about the cosmos and blowing my mind and showing me an expansive world, giving me a new vision of the world that and being moved by that story, Mm -hmm. that story, my response to that story isn't rational. Sure. My response to the scientific method, which is rational Sure. Isn't rational. If that makes mm-hmm. do you follow what I'm saying? Absolutely. And so, yeah. and so even our and so maybe one could say that the more rational a belief, a controlling belief system is, the more rational a controlling story is, the better it is. But right. the way we approach it and the way we move through it is itself fundamentally irrational. Yes. Would you would you agree with that? I do. I like how you went from story to vision. Neil deGrasse Tyson is offering a vision. He is seeking to be rational. Um, but that we're all seekers of rationale. Um, let's see, rationality is a virtue in itself. I'm trying to decide if I can do 
that. Sure. I maybe switch it up a bit. I kept thinking of the word philosophy. And if you're a philosopher, you love wisdom and you want to know what's true more than you want to feel right or win or be perceived as successful. So we are monkeys, certainly. Um, but if we are monkeys who are learning to think critically and learning to desire truth, maybe we're monkeys that could be called um, philosophical. Absolutely. Where, yeah, where we, so yeah, the idea, and, that, and that's actually helpful on the religion thing, because I think part of my insistence on religion essentially being synonymous with culture if you were to say, what's the difference between religion and culture? I would have to say, I, I don't have a, uh, a meaningful distinction to make between those two. We're learners of good culture, better culture. We all have cultural lenses through which we view the world. Um, good religion is righteous culture, right culture, um, culture that serves human thriving. In bad religion is that which degrades human thriving. Bigotry is bad religion. I have just wandered off a little bit, but I will. No, that's great. Yeah, but you're talking about a vision. You were helped, and you are helped um, by particular people's vision of the world. And those visions that depend on attentiveness to relationship rather than the denial of relationship are those visions that are worth dying for, living for and dying for. Those are visions that I think are rightly perceived as sacred. But that move of religion always has to involve belief in God is similar to this move of, no, I don't have a sense of the sacred. I'm just seeking what's true. And so I know we do have um, a vision of the sacred and we get to repent of our missteps in our um, seeking of the sacred, but we're, we're all seeking, we're all pilgrims, we are all fallible searchers, And but there are those rhetorical moves where we suggest that it's only other people who are in the grip of delusions, and I think we need to uh, repent of that way of framing things. Absolutely, yeah. I think our resistance to repenting of that way of things is because it is extraordinarily hard and painful to mm. to accept just how delusional we are or how prone to controlling yeah. stories we are. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's scary to do that. Um, mm -hmm. I feel like that's kind of the goal of my podcast and and my work online is to encourage a space where people can can start to unpack and examine themselves. And that's kind of my, mm -hmm. my unspoken, well, now spoken um, conspiracy. <laughs> that's my goal. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll throw in, too, that my own work on this comes from being, in my own lonely reading of the Bible, I call it, I was helped by The Twilight Zone and Doctor Who and Walt Whitman and Star Trek and the idea that any of those traditions, because they are traditions, are somehow merely secular and biblical tradition is sacred, that's a, um, 
that's a vision that I, I did not find helpful because I want all of the voices that enrich me to um, have a kind of equal status in a way. I am helped out. I, a line in the book is I have been saved from certain madness by certain loves. And I was, I've been very helped along the way by having um, mentors who helped me to believe that my love of a pop song could have as much meaning as my love for a psalm or something like that. Mm. So my, my argument for liturgy as the work of the people in an episode of Breaking Bad is a liturgy. Um, a cupcake is a liturgy. Baptism is liturgy. Weddings are liturgy. Marriage, all that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, I've needed it to be... Um, I've needed that sacred secular divide um, to be dissolved in my own life in order to uh, see clearly. Mm. Now, this gets to one of, I think, the most fascinating parts of your book. You came up with the term attention collection. Yeah. And could you talk about what that is? Sure. I think that came out of, I, I teach composition classes. I I teach a lot of composition classes in incarcerated settings. I'm a, I taught high school for much of my adult life, high school English, but then I went back to school and now I'm a college professor who teaches um, on campus, but also I, I teach at prisons in Middle Tennessee. And in both settings, part of what I hoped to do was walk in and introducing myself to people helping them to communicate that I believe that they, the students, wherever they are, already have within them a kind of um, library of thoughtfulness and wisdom that they themselves have collected their whole life long. The idea that poetry is something other than the language that breaks through is is something that I was wanting to challenge. They might think poetry, okay, well, that's kind of highfalutin NPR stuff. And I'm like, no, I, I think that you each can quote a song lyric or even a sentence that has been spoken to you or even describe a scene from a film in which you heard your own voice. So early assignment is tell the story of when you heard your own voice and someone else's voice. That is the beginning of recognizing one's own attention collection. If you love Walking Dead, um, you might be tempted to think, oh, that's just a guilty pleasure. I binge watch that. It's like, well, no, Walking Dead speaks to you for some reason. Soundgarden speaks to you. Taylor Swift gets in there somehow. Why? No shame. No, ah, this is all pop culture nonsense. Just what speaks to you and why? So attention collection becomes is a phrase with which we can kind of name our own inner canon, mm. C-A-N-O-N. I was and about another, to use that term, yeah, an interior canon of your, yeah, you've of got your, your own holy canon. scriptures, yeah. That's right, and you want to, uh, you don't want to deny what's there, but hopefully you're up for adding to it. Or, or a, a really great phrase that I received from one of my incarcerated students he was noting that Wendell Berry, um, agrarian philosopher, novelist, thinker, that one of the Wendell Berry readings I gave him was really getting through. And he said, you know, I think I'm going to hold on to Wendell Berry 
Uh, Wendell Berry is in my pantheon of elders now. Wendell Berry is right up there with Tupac in my pantheon of elders. And I thought pantheon of elders is pretty great too, because we all have within us voices of um, people who've gotten through or even people who've traumatized us. And we get to move the microphone around a little bit Mm. where that one, the bullying voice of say a relative or a minister or whomever they're there. And maybe there was some, there's wisdom to be had from them, but they don't have to have the microphone all the time. You can give the microphone to other voices that are perhaps more tender or more healing. Mm. So I'm, I'm all over the place now, but attention collection, pantheon of elders. And I guess I'll throw in too a line I picked up from Ralph Ellison, who said, you know, we're stuck with our relatives, but we get to choose our ancestors. Yes. And know, knowing who our ancestors are, for better or worse, or thinking more critically about how we might find better ancestors as we try to make sense of things is is part of my project in the way that I talk about religion. Mm. Now, would you so so would you describe that pantheon of elders or the attention collection as mm-hmm. as one's own personal religion? Absolutely to a degree. I I would throw in the word witness. Okay. And, you know, we have that phrase, you could put this in there, too. We each have a great cloud of witnesses. And witness, I I like witness the most because witness is different from what you pretend to believe or say you believe or insist that you don't believe. Your witness is the sum of your entire output. Mm. Your, Your witness is, that includes your receipts, your online history, your gas mileage, all of it. And your witness is undivided. So I would say that what I try, I hope that I am a good, remembering, faithful witness. And I have a number of witnesses, people who are alive, people who are dead, people who died centuries ago, who I think of as part of my own witness. If I was putting on a Shakespeare play, part of my hope would be that our performance would be a witness to the witness of Shakespeare. So, but of course, with witness, if you were to say, oh, well, no, that's not my religious witness. That's my political witness or that's my business witness. All of those categories with which we divide culture, often so as to evade responsibility, all of those divides fall apart when we use a word like witness. Cool. Yeah. And, you know, this leads me to think about what my own witnesses are or what my my thought collection is and i this is something that i've been thinking about reading your book and it's actually been a really helpful exercise for me and for people listening i encourage them to do this as well to sit down and maybe write out what are the voices that have really shaped your life or have formed your worldview mm-hmm. so i've been thinking about this the death of chester bennington and how deeply i've been grieving for him for those who don't yes. know chester bennington is the front former front man of lincoln park who, mm-hmm. who just recently committed suicide and you know i haven't listened to lincoln park in years but when i heard the news that he was dead it felt like a, a brother had died. I was devast- yes. I was devastated. I could hardly work that day. I was just so mm-hmm. so overwhelmed. And I was able to put that in the context of your book, realizing that Chester Bennington and his music was 
kind of a I, I was unaware that he has been part of my attention collection, that his music yeah. really, really deeply influenced me. I mean, I listened to him all through high school, all through college, and um, and that and that helps me make sense of the grief I felt as if I'd lost family or same with when David Bowie died as well. And, you know, just thinking of other, uh, other people in my thought collection, Ray Bradbury, who I, Uh I read all of his books in high school, Oscar Wilde. I read picture of Dorian Gray over and over and over again. You know, all of these people who have really shaped who I am. Yes. Now, you talk in your book, The Danger of Not Examining Mm. Your Own Religion and Not Examining or Being Aware of Your Thought Collection. And I want to to bring into this a book that I just recently read called The Shallows by Nicholas Carr. Okay. Um, It is a devastating book. Mm-hmm. Absolutely devastating. And basically what he says is that the the way we use the Internet, the technology of the Internet, is fundamentally shifting our ability to build an identity. Yeah. Because we are in a state of perpetual distraction. And you kind of, you describe the Internet as this fire hose, drinking yes. from a fire hose. And... Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I'll throw it quickly. Patton Oswalt had an amazing phrase for that. He said, with the Internet, what we have is everything that ever was available forever. Yes, exactly. And, and and not just that, but these technologies, Facebook, Twitter, so on, which I will fully confess I'm addicted to. Me too. Yeah, they, they shatter our focus. They train our brain to be in a state of constant distraction. And what Nicholas Carr lays out is that our short-term memory can really only focus on one or two or three things at a time Mm -hmm. and in order for it to enter the cathedral of long-term memory long yeah oh that's good yeah the long-term memory it is our inner museum of history our oh that's great it's our own inner museum of of culture and, yeah. and what he says reservoir of thoughtfulness if exactly. you like exactly and he describes it as uh, he quotes one author who i cannot remember right now but he says in western education we have often under we have always understood a well-formed mind as someone who holds a cathedral of western civilization and thought within his mind mm. and, yeah. and that's beautiful and and yeah. basically what he says is that the the long-term memory you know, science is showing, and I need to put in a caveat when I say science is showing. Yeah, if you, sure. If you want to read this and read the studies, please read The Shallows by Nicholas Carr. All yeah. the citations are there. So the long-term memory is basically has no end in what it can mm-hmm. store. It, it's this boundless thing. But in order for the long-term memory, which is where we find meaning, it's where yeah. we find it, it's where we find a sense of self. It is how we develop an identity. It's how we develop all the connections. It's how we connect the dots between all things mm-hmm. in our lives. The way memory moves from short term to long term is mm-hmm. through focus. Yeah, yeah. And when the internet is constantly distracting us, we are mm-hmm. incapable of maintaining that focus. 
What is often lost is identity or an awareness of identity. So, So I just want to throw that in because you talk about the internet, you talk about social media, and you talk about the dangers of not examining your own thought collection. Could you talk about that some? Yes, I think that relationship, awareness of relationship is our only hope. And unfortunately, denial of relationship seems to be, we mistake denial of relationship for power, effectiveness, haste, speed, all of those things. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm trying to process a lot of what you placed before <laughs> me. And I, but here you go. Here's a good one. Here's a helpful line. If you bring forth what is within you, what is within you will save you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what is within you will destroy you. Yes. And yeah. that is a saying attributed to Jesus in the Gospel of Thomas. I don't always share that it's attributed to Jesus because for a lot of people, their mind will shut down when they hear that. And there are those whose minds will shut down when I note that it's a quote from the Gospel of Thomas. But it's a very helpful saying that is very in line with Jungian psychology, that we do have, we have lava within us, we have rage, we have sadness, we have things that we've seen that we don't know what to do with. And if we bring that out, if we speak it, if we talk about it, if we, to borrow a line from the poet Carolyn Forche, if we open up the book of what happened, we will be helped, we may be healed, and we can definitely participate in the healing of others. But if we keep it closed, if we don't access it, or if we just seek distraction and evasion all day long, that cathedral remains empty. That cathedral um, remains inaccessible to us. And focus is indeed the thing. I know that, you know, one hears statistics that via our um, cell phones, we self-interrupt every three minutes or something. And I know that in order to write out an entire paragraph, to say nothing of getting a thousand words down in a day, I have to almost enter into a little blood oath (laughs) with myself (laughs) that it's like you are not allowed to look at Twitter or Facebook or check your emails for the next two hours. You just got to do it. You know, in order to be present to yourself, I, in trying to dissuade my students from looking at their cell phones, I've, I've noted that some, I'm borrowing from the, uh, from the Southern writer, Will Campbell here, when I say that a cell phone might be helpfully referred to as an electronic soul molester in the sense that it can throw you off. And it won't, one time somebody says, why would anyone call a cell phone that? And I said, well, because it robs you of the presence of others and it robs us of your presence. Yes. That you're, you're kind of looking for that other party whenever you look at it, whenever you look at the screen. Um, so I do think we're in danger of being people who are on the run from depth at, at every turn. Yes. Um, people who will not... Uh, don't know how to entertain a question or even hear a question as something other than an attack. Yes. And um, so we need that moment of pause. We need that that righteous work of, you know, letting ourselves think. Listening is a rare happening 
among human beings, William Stringfellow tells us, because very often we aren't even listening to the person talking to us. We're just preparing our defensive response once they've stopped talking. So we need more of these spaces in which we can say, you know, I'd have to really think about that before I hazarded an answer to that question. If you're running for office, that's going to be tough because you're you're not allowed on in front of a camera to let yourself think um, before speaking. But most of us aren't running for office, and we don't we don't have to let those um, speech patterns and those degrading ways of talking to people dictate the way we conduct ourselves. Yes, and you know I think the danger here is we have a religion, we have a thought collection, we have huh? a cloud of witnesses, whether we acknowledge it or not. Yeah, yeah. And it's there regardless. And the danger of, I think, this distraction, this, this a machine of distraction, as, mm-hmm. Mike, as Michael Carr puts it, yeah. is, which is our cell phones, uh, yeah. the internet, uh, Twitter, so on. They mm-hmm. they hinder that capacity to really knowing what our religion is, mm-hmm. what our witness is, and so yeah, I encourage everyone. I I'm the annoying guy who tells everyone you should really consider cutting back on social media. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I'm really glad that you wrote about this in the book because this is one of my rallying cries. I mean, this is one of the things that I am super passionate about because I think that all the best things in life come by way of focus. Yeah, yeah. And when we rob ourselves of the capacity to focus, we rob ourselves of the capacity for happiness in all mm-hmm. forms. I mean, my my relationship with my partner is made possible because we're able to focus on one another. You know, if we condition our brains to be in a constant state of distraction, our relationship would crumble. Mm-hmm. And and many for many people they do crumble. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm really glad that you brought up that topic. And of course, it's a tool. I, I mean, I feel that the tool that is Twitter has been very helpful to me. But as Jacques Lowe tells us, a computer isn't a companion. It's a vampire. Exactly. Yes. And, and it can it can work as a tool, but it can also be a way of evading the fact of my own body, the fact of the presence of others and that call to hurry up and matter as my partner once put it can pull me away from presence every time because presence feels like a heavier burden than the quick fix of looking to see if somebody might have retweeted me yes exactly and i remember reading that phrase hurry up and matter and it Mm -hmm. really struck me i mean it hit a nerve for me because it spoke to my obsessive involvement with social media and and how that draws that from how how it draws me out of really mattering the the things that really matter yeah exactly and yeah and we'll say of things you know that didn't matter well it does matter but matter mattering is non-optional You are going to matter one way or another. But what will be the nature of of my cultivating work? Similarly, I want to say culture is non-optional. And, and of course, I'm one who thinks that religion is non-optional because I think we are devoting ourselves in one way or another all the time. 
what will be the shape of my devotion. Yes. And that, too, is a way of, of defining witness as well, because witness is the shape our devotion takes. Mm. Um, yes. And it, it's the shape our devotion will have taken um, when we're gone. Yes. And, and it will not necessarily have been the same as what we said we were up to or what we said we valued. Um, yeah. So what you do is what you believe. Yeah. Yeah. What you, and I, a little formulation for that is what you believe is what you see is what you say is what you do is who you are. Mm. And that, that's just a little, that that's, there's nothing new in that. Every sacred tradition we have has told us that we will know ourselves by our fruits Yes. The evidence of what we actually believe is most easily discerned in our output. But we miss that one over and over again. I'm, we have an entire, there is a culture of denial, which seems to be the ruling culture in these United States at the moment. But I'd like to think that, that there's also a great waking up going on as we realize that our votes mattered, our non-votes mattered, and our avoidance of conflict with parents and neighbors and between generations, our, our avoidance of conflict was perfectly calibrated to give us today's news cycle. Mm. And we get, to, we get to try to turn it around in ways large and small every day. Yeah. Another way to, to frame this is in the words of Bob Dylan, you're going to have to serve somebody. It's true. Yeah, you're going to have to serve somebody. Your witness will be made evident one way or the other, whether you're aware of it or not. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So so we've talked a lot about kind of an inner religion, interior mm -hmm. religion and how that and how all all belief, all action, all culture is religion. Mm -hmm. So. I'm curious because this is this is something that I'm working through now. I've had to work through what do I believe mm -hmm. about the external truth claims of my religion, which is Christianity. Mm -hmm. And so I'm at a point where Christianity is a guiding inner myth for me. Mm -hmm. right? And I mean yeah. and I don't mean myth in a derogatory sense. I think sure. I think myth is is profound. I think myth is mm -hmm. massively important and meaningful. Yeah. Myth is not a downgrade for me no. uh, to describe the the Christian story. But when it comes to external truth claims mm -hmm. about the world, I'm now at a point where I can't go beyond science. Yeah. And and, you know, I've I've described this as simultaneously very expanding and narrowing because mm -hmm. science is maybe the best tool we have for understanding the world around us. It is probably the greatest discovery of mankind to to understand the universe. But it's also very narrowing in that yeah. I can't go beyond what science says about the external world and that yeah. and that includes things like the existence of the soul like god now i can fervently hope and i do i yearn mm -hmm. for eternal life i yearn yeah. for a god mm -hmm. but i don't know 
And mm. and so now if someone were to come at me and say, well, do you act, do you, you're a Christian, do you believe that Christ literally raised from the dead, physically raised from the dead? Mm-hmm. Uh, I would have to say, well, probably not because that that doesn't work with what I understand about the world. But do I believe that he raised from the dead in an internal sense? Yes. Do I believe in the archetype of the Christ as an eternal truth? Yes. Do I believe Mm -hmm. it as a guiding myth of self-sacrifice? Yes. Absolutely. Mm. Do I believe it's one of the great myths of mankind? Yes. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. But a lot of people are made uncomfortable by the fact that I no longer believe in an external literal god i'm agnostic on that point i hope yeah i hope but i don't know so i'm i'm interested to hear where you are with all that what is, yeah what is your external what is your faith in regards to the external world look like yes okay great <laughs> question i will back up a little bit and say i would define science as our as discovery like science is where we yes. are now, I was very helped one time when I was listening to NPR and there was this description of this creature at the bottom, deepest, the deepest depths of the oceans. They found this creature that lives off of the bones of dead whales or something like that. Wow. And as they were describing this creature in a transition, they said, new to science, this creature, blah, blah, blah. And I thought... New to science, isn't that something? Yeah, that there are things not only that are new to science, but if you were to try to describe the field of, you know, reality next to the field of what is scientifically verifiable, most of reality remains beyond the verification, the powers of verification of science. I think Neil deGrasse Tyson said that when we speak of dark matter, we probably ought to have a little more humility, because when we say dark matter, there is the insinuation that we know that it's dark and that it's matter. Right. And and he said, we don't know, so we could just as well refer to dark matter as Fred. (laughs) Right. You know, that would make as much sense. So I love that kind of thing, not because I'm trying to assert um, an argument for the literal resurrection of Jesus or the existence of God or something like that, but because we just note that there not only is there so much that we don't know, um, we don't know most of what's there, if there's any way of sort of quantifying this. I'll, I'll throw in that Marilyn Robinson you know, she's a novelist. She's known um, as the author of Gilead. She's known as Barack Obama's favorite living novelist, mm. I think. But she also writes about science. She writes really, really interesting stuff that you for the Chronicle of Higher Ed and all that kind of thing. I just wanted to jump in and say that Marilyn Robinson's an interesting person yes. to look into in this regard. I like your use of the word agnostic because as not... It's not not believing. It's not knowing that there's no God. It's just knowing that you don't know. Exactly. And and I think there is a deep sense in which we could argue that most of the writers of Scripture are agnostic. 
They are describing visions. They're describing what, what they've seen within those visions. But the idea that they, oh, I mean, I'm, I guess a big one with the resurrection is, I can't, I should know, but in, at the conclusion of one of the Gospels, it describes the risen Jesus appearing before the disciples and ascending or disappearing or something. Yes. And then it says, of the very people who were there, many believed and many doubted. Right. So it's kind of the same. It's like, what? Yes. Well, then what, then what was the nature of what they all just experienced? Yes. Well, we can join centuries of people trying to figure out what they had experienced. And we can land in different places in interpreting those scripture scriptures and still feed poor people together. Yes. And, you know, this is why I still call myself a Christian. Yeah, so yeah. I, I, I view my—I hope that—I know that I'm a beneficiary of the tradition. I hope that I will be remembered as a faithful practitioner of the tradition. I love that the tradition gives us creeds rather than um, verifiable truth claims. Mm. Because creed, yes. credo is believe, so I can say— and mean it, that I believe, as you just did, I believe, hope, even bank on some things. But do I know? No, I right. don't. Right, yeah. And, and I even have moments in which I have so much faith that I, I have a kind of deep confidence that I'm going to see the people I have loved who have died again. I even have times when I speak to people who have died, and I feel yes. very solidly that they can hear me. Yes. But if you were to say, and you know all the time that they can hear you, right? No, I don't. Yes. And and this, this is throwing a bunch of... Uh, this is drawing from the tradition in what can feel like counterintuitive ways. But one of the things that I believe I am saved from is having to pretend that I know. Yes, absolutely. So my, my own process of um, my own becoming more Christian, as I understand Christian, I know that for some listeners, the word Christian can mean, oh, you mean the sleeper cell for the Republican Party, right? <laughs> right, yeah. Well, no, that, that actually is not what I'm referring to when I say Christian. Mm. I, I am I'm referring to something very, very different. So belief, the, and weirdly, the tradition covers it. The, the tradition does quite well in helping us think through faith. I mean, the just shall live by faith. The just shall not live by truth claims or through apologetics or through arguments for the existence of God. Absolutely. I, I think of a lot of that as being very much to the side of what I think of as the tradition. Mm. To, to an extent, I think of a lot of that as instances of unfaithfulness to the tradition. Mm. So when we have, when Christians in America, or those who most loudly proclaim themselves as Christians in America, are arguing for cuts to Medicaid, for instance. It's like, okay, I, I don't, I know that you think of yourself as Christian, but I, I think that this is, um, 
in some cases, in the case of white supremacy, I want to say I think it's actually the spirit of Antichrist that you're thinking of when you speak of yourself as Christian. Sure, yeah. Or your faith or something like that. So there's just lots of different ways to think it through. And as long as people are open to conversation, the tradition itself is a long conversation. But of course, it's more than talk. It's also laying down your life for people. Yes. It's also, you know, going into, uh, it's, it's also dying in, in camps and stuff. It's also going to prison for your insistence on, um, human rights, all this kind of thing. So the, sometimes the tradition gets talked about as, as if it is just this mental assent to outlandish claims. And I, and I'm familiar with that, but that isn't what I think of as, um, it's Christianity in the deepest sense. Sure. And what's consoling to me is the fact that when Christ was rose from the dead in that story, the disciples did doubt. Yeah. And so, you know, kind of preserved forever in that account is doubt and that that yeah. is part of this tradition. That's right. And that also part of the tradition of the forming of scripture itself is it's kind of a dialogue. It, it isn't a book. It's a library of books that span centuries wherein each author is trying to figure out what the hell is going on. And they uh-huh. and they draw from the past. They draw from other authors and then they build on it. And they each one kind of creates a slightly different vision. They are different <clears throat> witnesses um, to the witness of the life of Jesus. And Luke, for instance, opens saying, you know, there's a bunch of these. And here's mine. Yes. I'm giving it a try now. Yes, exactly. And... And so, you know, I can I can call myself a Christian being firmly planted in that tradition, in the mm-hmm. ongoing tradition of uh, trying to understand what the ground of being is, trying to mm-hmm. understand what, and of course, Christianity is my formative worldview, it is my starting point, and, and it's how I, I understand the world. Yeah, and, I will throw in, um, I, years ago, I developed a friendship with a Buddhist who is enough of a Buddhist to not call himself a Buddhist. <laughs> and, um, but the more we talked, the more I realized that I was in a phase of life in which I wasn't interested that if my Buddhist friend had said, you know what, I'm, I'm just so impressed and I'm so chastened by your life that I think I'm ready to become a Christian and renounce Buddhism. I, I mean, it's it's a joke um, to even talk about that scenario. Sure. But I realized, you know, I would not want that because his his form of devotion, his witness was enriching my witness so much that if he was to try to switch horses or try to ride two horses or something like that, it seemed to me that it was going to um, really diminish um, the gift that his life was to me. So it was kind of a moment of clarity in my own development to think I'm no longer in a place where I would ever think of our relationship as a means to the end of his conversion, because he is already so deeply converted to the path of righteousness that I don't I don't feel a conflict between our traditions. Yeah. I mean, of course, there, there are differences. But the differences themselves are sacred. But I don't experience them as conflict the way I once did. And, and I'm, I'm in the same place with, 
you know, Muslims that I've met. And, um, I mean, even, even atheists, it's like, I, I don't need you to, um, you, many an atheist is a more serious disciple of the teachings of Jesus than many self-described Christian in my life. Absolutely. You know, what that brings to mind is C.S. Lewis's uh, last book of the Chronicles of Narnia, The Last Battle, hmm. where he, where someone who follows Tash, who is kind of the, the pagan devil figure, Mm-hmm. The the soldier who worships Tash finds himself in heaven. Yeah, and Aslan essentially says, "You, you worship, you followed mm-hmm. the holy, the good aspect yeah. of your religion. You followed yeah. the the pure and the true, and mm. because of that, he is here in paradise." Yeah, and that is, of course, every bit biblical, because in James, true religion, true religion is looking after widows and orphans. Yes. It doesn't seem to have anything to do with what you say you believe or what you confess or any of it. Exactly. Um, so there's C.S. Lewis going before us. Exactly. And Yet again. And, you know, there's that beautiful exchange that Lewis had with Joy Davidson before they got married. I believe it was Joy Davidson who's yeah, who said... David- uh, uh, what was her name? I think Davidman. I mean, yeah, it was something like that. And yeah. her son uh, loved the Chronicles of Narnia. So, for those who are listening who don't know what the hell we're talking about, the the Chronicles of Narnia is a series of children's books by C.S. Lewis, the great Christian writer. And they were surely people know C.S. Sure, Lewis. Well, I've met people who don't know who C.S. Lewis is. It's so okay. I just, okay. you know, I just can't assume that people always know what I'm talking about. So, yeah, he's one of the best liberal theologians we've ever had. Yes, he is. <laughs> he really is. And, you know, the, just being funny, conservative, too, if you prefer that. Well, and, you know, I feel like the evangelical church has kind of claimed him. And I and I sure. look at them and I'm like, do you do you realize what he wrote? <laughs> like, do you yes. do you have any idea? Like, beyond mere christianity do you have Mm -hmm. any idea how provocative some of his books are but but that aside so his he he wrote this really beautiful children's series called the chronicles of narnia and the god figure the christ figure in the chronicles of narnia is the lion aslan and aslan is this good benevolent powerful wonderful figure and and joy davidman uh sent lewis um, a letter saying that her son loves aslan Mm. and but her son is afraid that he loves aslan more than he loves jesus no funny and aslan or and 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 c.s lewis's response was well aslan is the image of jesus yeah. And so in loving Aslan, he is probably loving Jesus more than he ever has in his life. And sure. And that idea that that by loving the good and true, by loving mm-hmm. the upright and the noble, that mm. is true religion. That is good, yeah. healthy religion, regardless of what tradition it's in. Yeah. Cool. Something that I have been 
kind of experimenting with going through this transformation of faith and this evolution of faith, going through that process, as you describe it, of binding, unbinding, and then binding again. You know, I'm, I'm feeling I'm, I'm becoming unbound from certain doctrines, but then I'm, I'm going through that rebinding process of how I understand the world. And, mm-hmm. and so we mentioned the creeds earlier, and I'm, I'm looking at those creeds, you know, when I pray the, the daily office from the Episcopal Book of Common Prayer, and just thinking, how, how can I reframe this in a way that is meaningful to me? Yeah. How can I say the Nicene Creed in a way that is mythic to me? So I look at the cosmos, and, I, and, and Mike McGarg in his book, Finding God in the Waves, makes this point that we are all created from the sacrifice of other things. Yeah. That we're all that our planet and the very matter of our being is made by the sacrifice of stars exploding and spilling their guts out into the cosmos and how there is this endless cycle of birth, death and sacrifice and then creation from the stuff of that death. Yes. And how that is the ongoing nature of the cosmos and how the story of Christ fits squarely in that. Mm-hmm. And and how that is a meaningful story for me and how I can look at the, the Christian myth in that light. Or how, um, you know, in the book of Genesis, it says man is made in the image of God. Well, I can mm-hmm. look at that and say, if you know, if God is the ground of being, I am made of star stuff. I am made of the very elements i'm i'm made of the most common elements of the universe yes and what makes me special is that the universe is within me as neil degrasse tyson puts it what makes me meaningful what makes the human race meaningful is is that the universe is within us and that is another way of saying we are made in the image of god yeah and so i'm i'm kind of experimenting with these super heretical thoughts (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm experimenting with these incredibly, you know, I, I know that they're heretical, but honestly, I don't care. They're a helpful way for me to reframe my faith. Well, they're only heretical according to one read of one tradition. Yes, that's very true. And of course, heresy, you know, today's often today's heretics are tomorrow's saints. It just it takes a while for the Catholic Church to figure out that they really should not have excommunicated Galileo. And um, when they do figure that out, they they set the record straight. Yes. You might think, well, fat lot of good that did to Galileo. And like, well, if you believe in a communion of the saints or if you believe that time is an illusion, this record matters yes. because we're, we have to revise. We have to go back. Oh, and of course, over and over again, the, the canonization of saints is this process whereby we discover, oh, yeah, we thought that that person was a threat to Christianity. Turns out they were the only real Christian on the scene. So now we, we call him a saint. Um, I think of Fanny Howe. I thought of Fanny Howe as you were speaking because she wants, she's a poet who is Catholic, and when she describes her own Catholicism, she says, why not invest oneself in one more completely insane account of what reality is? (laughs) So there's a sense in which, I mean, she needs it to be insane. Does that mean that she thinks that it's all madness? Well, no, of course not. It is a... um, 
one avenue, one witness, one communal witness with which to try to seek righteousness. And um, she has said of consciousness, I think recently, she said, I don't think of consciousness as something that I have. I think of consciousness as something that has me. Mm. So there was that, that, again, inescapable network of mutuality where the world is the womb of God, that she is in this network of thoughtfulness that out of which she came and out of which she believes she's going to pass back into. So again, I don't, oh goodness, and I'll throw in too, people are very fond of Pope Francis and are quick to be less than happy with um, Ratzinger who preceded him. But Ratzinger, Pope Benedict, um, before he became Pope, was asked how many different ways there are to God. And he said, as many as there are people. Wow. Yeah. So so here's this guy who is supposedly the guardian of the doctrine yes. and who is a force of negation for many of us. But even within his view of things, there seemed to be a deep recognition that all we can be within history is heretics in a sense, but that, that God is the redeemer and is sorting this out in some way. Sure. Sure. So I have one last question before we wind up. And it's a big question, and okay. and I'm always a bit nervous asking it because it, it requires people to speculate some. But I think yeah. I think that you are a really acute observer of of culture and pop culture and and Christianity and in, in, in America. Mm-hmm. I'm just curious, what trajectory do you see Christianity in America going on? Yes. Okay. Well, often when you you alluded to the evangelical church somewhere back there, and I was tempted to interject with that which passes for evangelical church. Right. And and I alluded to this before when I noted that for many listeners, the word Christian refers to the sleeper cell or the prayer group of the Republican Party. And I get that. I mean, if you were to turn on CNN or Fox News or any of the, uh, um, <laughs> what do we call them, sources? Yes. I don't know. They're, they're selling advertising. Uh, I would say purveyors of news product because we don't have to concede to the corporation the definition of what news is. Sure. I believe that poetry is news that stays news. Mm. Um, but... Um, to go back to your question, the trajectory, I, I tweeted recently, and I really wish that more people had retweeted it, that the day will come when the latest shame spiral of white supremacy in America, the day will come when our descendants will wonder how anyone thought that it was Christian. Yes. How, how an adjective like Christian could have been affixed to any of that. Now, people have tried to be a little more careful when they say, um, you know, 81% evangelical support for Donald Trump. I always want to say, okay, you're referring to white evangelical. Yes. You're going really, really narrow, and you really need to note, think through what you mean with this word. And, of course, evangelical, if I said, hey, everybody needs to watch Twin Peaks, I'm evangelical about Twin Peaks. I think that it is good news. Evangelical could, of course, mean multi-partisan good news bringer. 
Sure. Or evangelical could be omnipartisan, that which is good news for all parties. So it is indeed the case that a lot of white people in America who think of themselves as the church are uncritically wedded to the person that I refer to as public servant 45 and his <laughs> agenda. But I, I don't think that it can last. I think that that ship is is going down. I, I am evangelical or Buddhist enough to even hope that the man who houses the spirit called Trump <laughs> might know healing of some sort. I noted that his recent press secretary said, you know, he's 71 years old. We're not going to change him. And I thought, what a nihilistic thing to say about another human being. Sure. This is the White House press secretary referring to the current holder of the office. But I, I just think we need we need to not be captivated by that way of thinking about other human beings. If we say that he is holding on to power or that he rode into the White House on a wave of bigotry, I want to argue no one's just a bigot. No one's just a white supremacist. So my, my attempt to adhere to the Christian tradition means that I, I'm going to keep trying to feel hope for and and maybe has something to do with my work in prisons because I a lot of my favorite people a lot of my mentors are people who have done horrible things that means that they're going to die in jail mm -hmm. so I try to bring something of that compassion for myself and others to my own take on uh, <laughs> what we call Christianity in America but I'm I'm really really helped by the Reverend Barber in North Carolina, yes. who still calls himself evangelical. And I think that that understanding of Christianity not only will survive, but is going to be essential um, if we're going to have a democracy here. Yes. So let, let's not confuse the white supremacist, the death throes, you know, those, sure. those yes. final... But, I mean, I've, I've been to South Africa. I know that white supremacy plays to win. But I think ultimately it will be viewed as the heresy, the spirit of Antichrist that it is, rather than normative Christianity, as it seems to be operating as um, in many circles in America right now. Sure. So what I'm hearing you say is, um, is hope. And to, yes. and to hope that the better angels of our nature and the better angels of our faith and religion will win yeah. out. And you think that that is possible. Yes. Fred Rogers, a Mr. Rogers neighborhood, a PCUSA minister, yes. is in many ways kind of like Jimmy Carter, kind of like the Reverend James Lawson. These are folks who represent the tra tradition meaningfully. And to try to praise them with the word, oh, but they're liberal Christians. It's like, why give... <laughs> Why give a self-described conservative um, that way out of dealing with their witness? So witnesses like those folks are the witnesses that I, I cling to in trying to make sense of these things. Absolutely. Well, I'm afraid that we are out of time, but where can people find you? 
There, I'm on Twitter, of course, um, that form of Antichrist called Twitter. And also there's a daviddark.org where all of my books, all of my recent articles are available. And I love hearing from people. And I love it when people say, well, hey, come to my Unitarian church or come to my mega church and, or speak at my library or school. I do a lot of that. It's all online. I Wonderful. can be found. Great. And, and your Twitter handle is at David Dark. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a lot of fun. I hope we can do it again. I would welcome that. Cool. Well, thank you so much for listening. And the music is provided by the Jelly Rocks. If you love my work, if you want to check more of it out, you can come find me on sbradfordlong.com. If you want to engage with this show, respond to what David and I have talked about, you can comment on the page for this podcast on my website at sbradfordlong.com. You can find us on Twitter and so on and so forth.